and this is really important to me actually to say, it's really important to me that I do things for three reasons. I do things for art. I do things for love and I do things for money. And I think it's really a disservice to not talk about the money part that, that we sometimes, even if we're like, I've been doing this since I was eight years old. It's my dream. I do all kinds of writing. I don't get paid for, um, you know, like it is art to me and that is why I do it. And if I wanted to just make money and I didn't want to make art, I would go and do something else because this is much harder than other things that I could do for the same amount of money. Hi, this is You May Contribute a Verse. I'm Brenna Jenneret, kidlit author, Colorado climber, and co-host of this podcast. I'm joined by my co-host, Josh Munkin, kidlit author, dad, and science communicator, and podcast wizard, John Seymour, an author-illustrator, family man, and senior informatics dude. That was our guest, the Laurel Snyder, author of some familiar titles like Endlessly Ever After, Up and Down the Scratchy Mountains, Hungry Jim, and my personal favorite, The Slidey Diner. Laurel has been in the business for a long time, and her perspective on how things have changed and how things have stayed the same are invaluable particularly her perspective on why she writes, usually for art, love, or money, and occasionally to feel fancy. Make sure to check out Laurel's most recent book, The Witch of Woodland, illustrated by Cornelia Lee, and make sure to listen all the way to the end for Laurel's contribution to the Dead Manuscript Society. Have a dead manuscript of your own? Need help revising that manuscript for your query? Or maybe you just want help with comps and agent research, or your pitch could use some love? Check out Justin Colon's new editorial services. He offers everything from full manuscript critiques with Zoom call to assistance with comp titles and brainstorming sessions. And if you can't decide which package is right for you, no worries. All of Justin's services can be purchased a la carte style. So mix and match whatever works best for you. And coming up on January 9th, Justin is also hosting the Mechanics of Humor class. Humor is hard, but it's a skill that can be honed. Justin will deconstruct humor and how it works using visual and verbal presentations, mentor texts, class exercises, and optional homework to work on what you've learned. Join Justin in writing funny stories with confidence and consistency. Sign up today at thekidlithive.com. And now, here's Laurel's first. I had to go get a new computer. Uh, <laughs> I had to go all the way to the store. It was the whole thing. Yeah, no, no. I went upstairs. I had to get my work, my day job computer. Um mm. I, I went to restart, wouldn't recognize the microphone, wouldn't connect, had to restart. Then it forced an update, and I finally threw in the towel. Oh, no. Sorry. The, I have my nice <laughs> my nice work MacBook Pro that they gave me, and uh, everything works smoothly on this one. So. All right. For a minute, I thought Zencaster was not going to let you in, and it was going to be me and Laurel doing the podcast. The together. absolute <laughs> audacity. I know. Like, Laurel, I hope, you, I hope you're into co-hosting this podcast with me because you're on. <laughs> I have no idea how to do that, but sure. Well, you're in luck because neither do we. Yeah, right. actually, funny story. I, I was actually the first. I I was a podcast host before I knew what a podcast was. Oh. Um, I, I was like doing a pay gig for a Jewish magazine that was then called Next Book and is now called Tablet. And they asked oh. if I wanted a pay job, like interviewing authors for a Jewish author series. And at the time I had a little baby at home and was freelancing anything I could find. And so it was so exciting. They would pay me to read a book and then I would drive out to Stone Mountain, Georgia to like 
some random dude's garage where he had a studio and they would <laughs> like, so I was like, it was before all of this. Yeah. And, uh, but I remember when they called me with the job and they were like, do you want to do a podcast? And I was like, what's a podcast? <laughs> and they said, uh, they said, it's like an NPR show only over the computer and your phone. And I was like, no one's ever going to do that. Like, <laughs> Yeah, right. Who does who does that? That sounds that sounds ridiculous. And then like six months later, they were like, yeah, we're paying you way too much money to do this. You have to stop. Oh, for real? Oh, that what a bummer. Because then yeah. all the technology yeah. got so much easier and they were able to just take it in house and do it there. And so anyway. Yeah, totally. I so I realize I never actually answered your question, Laurel. We just talked a bunch about climbing and different climbing areas. So so to answer your question, I was writing, I was, oh, I'll wait, I'll wait until you get your, no, no, I can hear you. I'm just doing this. Yeah. Tangled there. I think okay. I'm good. So, um, I was doing a blog about, um, climbing in the outdoors and now having a kid because I had been writing about that before I had a kid. So I was mm-hmm. writing about that. Um, and then I started doing a podcast about that and I was interviewing moms and specifically outdoor moms and like, you know, who were you before you had kids and like this whole series. Cause I found it like fascinating because once yeah. I had a kid, I was like, I don't know who I am anymore. You know, like yeah. climbing is still very integral, but I don't know how to like integrate it into my life. And it's like throwing me for this like loop I wasn't expecting. And I just, you know, it was all this stuff. So anyways, I was doing this podcast and I thought, you know, I was having this great time, but then I couldn't write. I didn't have any time Mm -hmm. to write because I was so invested in the podcast. So I had to stop. Josh also had a podcast and we met as critique partners. He also didn't have time for his podcast and stopped it. And I was like, Hey, I'm like, could we do this together and like split, you know, like sort of split it up and make it more sustainable. And so that's how this came about. So my, my version was as my day job is as a, a writer. I'm a corporate corporate writer mm-hmm. and content creator. And um, I, in 2018, 2019, I'd thrown in the, the towel on having any sort of creative individual project. Um, and I figured I would just leverage the content creation and interviewing and journalism that was in my background and just interview other creative people. And lo and behold, they inspired me enough to just, you know, carve out the time for it. In those early years, I interviewed folks like, like Kelly Light and Samantha mm-hmm. Berger who were in the mm-hmm. picture book world and my kids were the right age. And, um, yeah, it was just, it was the perfect storm. Um, hmm. when Brenda came really along cool. and we just like, we joined, joined forces. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Cool. And it's been, so that's why we only publish bi-weekly because it just is that much more right. sustainable for us. So we each edit, you know, one episode a month and it's like, we still have all this writing time and it's, yeah. So it's been, it's been really great. It's been a really good. And it's funny too, like, you know, I have like the things that I listen to often, like the daily or, you know, that are like much more like regularly posted, but mm-hmm. the podcasts that I listen to that are not like newsy like that, um, like my friend Rachel does one called Commonplace that's like interviews with very long form interviews with poets or Jen Lofren does that literati cast that's like an industry thing. Yep, yep. But like those ones, I feel like whenever, like it's like you have your library and like whenever they pop up, I'm excited to see them. But I don't have that. It's not like the daily where like if it doesn't show up, I'm like, where is it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, That like I I sort of, it feels different. It feels like I know that Rachel's podcast happens when she encounters somebody to interview and or has the space in her life to set it up and that it's not. And, and so I haven't listened to all of them, so I can always go back into the, the archives and listen to something I haven't listened to from the past. And I don't know, it just feels like there's all these different models for it now. 
Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's, yeah, it's nice that we can pick and choose too, and that we still can maintain an audience. You know, people are still, they seem to be still listening. So yeah, no, <laughs> so that's really great. Cool. <laughs> and, but I am, I'm sadly here to tell you that all these years after you forayed into podcasting without knowing it, there's not any more money in it. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah, right. To force yes. you to carve out time to. Uh, yeah, you know, right. No, yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah, yeah. But it's such a, yeah. I mean, that's art though, right? Like, this is just what we do. We make, it's we true. make things. There's not a, a, much money in anything for <laughs> Yeah. No guarantee. Um, okay, so we're like we're already so far into this. But, I mean, Laurel, thank you so much for coming on. I, I am, like, so excited to talk to you. We, no. my son and I, love, love, love um, Endlessly Ever After. We oh, love Slidey Diner. We love, like, we love so much of your stuff that I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, we have to have her on. So Aww. I'm so pleased that you were like, yeah, sure, I'll come on your podcast. Thank you so much. Um, no, it's, it's like when I saw that you were talking about Slidey Diner, like, that was my very first picture book. It's been out of print for like well over a decade. I have hundreds of copies. If anybody wants one out there, I've got hundreds of copies in a box. Oh my gosh, I would like one. I would like one for our house. My son, my son would lose his mind. He loves that book, Laurel. It's like the perfect, like, creepy, but like kid friendly. Like, I don't even know how we came across it, but we just, he had to read it every night, like twice a night for like, Oh, weeks. that's so sweet. It was, it was very, we, we can get into that, but it was very much of my first, very first sort of non, well, I guess we'll get into it. I started <laughs> yeah. out, I, st- <laughs> I started out as a poet. Um, my, my, I started as a, as a writer, as a poet. And when I was like eight years old and, um, and that was only ever all I wanted to do, you know, that, that I was going to be a poet. I was going to be a poet. By the time I was in high school, I knew where I wanted to go to graduate school. Someday I was going to be a poetry teacher. Like that was all there ever was. Really chasing um, those big paychecks. and uh and then I went to graduate school per my plan like that was as far as my plan took me really and I and I got to graduate school and I was unable to make work like I just couldn't Mm. write poetry anymore for the first time in my life it was too rigorous it was too competitive it was too like esteemed there was something about the I don't know the currency of that I don't even know. Like I, I did, I was not somebody who'd gone to a fancy college or a fancy high school or been a particularly good student. And I got to this world where people took themselves seriously in a different Mm. way. And I just couldn't, I couldn't operate. And, um, and so I started doing other things. I started sort of casting around. I tried, my husband's a musician and we had started dating at that point. And, I started trying to write some country songs. Like I made a demo oh, awesome. of country songs, <gasps> yes. and, uh, which I recently rediscovered actually. And then, then I started trying to write picture books. And it was because at some point I think I realized like when I was eight and I decided I wanted to be a poet when I grew up, the poetry that filled my life at the, in those years were picture books, right? Were, were children's writing or, or like, you know, old possum's book of practical cats and, <laughs> You know, like my like Oxford of collection of verse for children, like the, the, the things that I had fallen in love with were not adult contemporary poetry. The things I had fallen in love with were rhyming couplets, you know. And um, and so I started sort of messing around with that at the tail end of my graduate school experience. And, and that was just sort of the next step was started. So Slidey Diner came out of um, I was still in graduate school and or finishing up and working in a diner in Iowa City 
where I stayed for years after that. And so Slidey Diner is very much memoir. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was me sort of trying to take my poet brain and this new project of trying to write picture books and putting them together with the life that I was living at the time. Yeah. Um, which, in Iowa. which coincided with your time at Iowa Writers Workshop. Yeah. Or, or did, did that happen after? Mm-hmm. No. So I, I, I moved to Iowa City in 1997 or 1998, I guess 1998. And I graduated from the program in 2000. And by that point, I had begun to work on picture books. So, you know, it may have been 2001, but it was it, I, and I, I had like a postgrad fellowship for a year. And like so I was just kind of in this limbo space where I was still in Iowa City, still living in student housing or, you know, off campus housing kind of hanging around with other people who were still in the program, but, um, but not, maybe not still technically enrolled at the school at that point. I don't know. Yeah. Everything takes a decade to write. So it's hard to say. You lose track of where it all begins. Yeah. Yeah. What, I mean, what was the process of, I mean, entering that world and pivoting from poetry to picture books? What was the investigation like? I mean, the industry, industry was incredibly different 20 years. Two twenty-three years ago. Yeah, um, it was. How, how did you go about get like getting your feet planted funny, in the world? It's funny now because um, because I the world the world has changed, but the people haven't. Mm-hmm. And so I will run into somebody who I submitted to or queried in two thousand and one, <laughs> and who rejected me or Look sent me, me a very sweet rejection letter. And I'll say, I I actually just recently had a funny experience. My my agent just left the business after we'd been working together for seventeen years. Oh my gosh! Yeah, and she's my one of my very best friends. Like she's a family member at this point, basically. Yeah. And so I had to query, and I and I I just went back to the same list I had in two thousand. <laughs> Very the, the people that rejected me when I when I signed with Tina. Um, so so in answer to your question, I in the year that I began to really think about the industry, which is different than writing, right? Like I've been writing since I was eight, and I had entered the world of like poetry submissions and poetry magazines and fellowships, and and that's a very different world. Mm-hmm. You pay reading fees, and it's a very kind of elite. I don't know. It's like there's there's this I actually once years ago write a, wrote a piece about this that like there's a, there's this imaginary ladder that people see that mm. doesn't exist. But like they think there's this imaginary ladder and that like first you go to graduate school and then you get a few pieces in magazines and then you apply for fellowships and maybe you go to Breadloaf and then you mm. get a teaching job doing adjunct work and then you get your first book deal. And th- th- there was this sort of like mythic ladder and at some point I realized it didn't exist. And I was like, oh, that, that's liberating. Like, Because if you imagine a ladder, then you're going to miss a rung at some point. And, and once you've missed a rung, it's very hard to keep climbing. Um, totally. I like the climbing metaphor. Brenna, I imagine you like the climbing metaphor. Too. There's always a different, <laughs> right. different you know sort of handhold you can take, well, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, or a workaround. Yeah, I'll just climb around those rungs. <laughs> exactly, right. If, if, if you've been training for off-roading, yes. Right. <laughs> um, but if you haven't, you're looking for a rung that's not there. So yes. so at some point I realized I was going to not climb that ladder, that, that I was going to keep writing poetry for the rest of my life, but I didn't want to play that game and that it was going to be dangerous for me to try to play that game, that I was, if, if I tried to compete in that way, I would stop writing, was what I was realizing. Um, that I am not cut out for that kind of competition. And um, I really, you know, I'm, in a, I'm a writer because I love 
words. I'm a writer because that's what happens inside my head when I'm left to my own devices. I'm a writer because I loved books so much as a kid and wanted to participate in that conversation. And when that conversation felt toxic, it, it like just sort of decimated my sense of the community of writers, mm-hmm. of books, of words. Um, and I think then I went back. I, I actually talk about this a lot in my school visit. And then I sort of went back to the thing that felt safe was what's the children's library. It was like, okay, well, if, if this world that I thought was what I wanted is going to be dangerous for me, then I'm going to go back to the place that made me safe, which was, you know, sitting in a beanbag chair with a copy of the Chronicles of Narnia or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and so, so I returned to children's writing as a kind of refuge when Iowa was no longer a positive experience for me. Um, and, and didn't know what I was doing. And so, you know, I mean, I knew lots of picture books and I had a natural sense of language, but I, I, I had to learn the form just like any other form. Sure. And um, I had to learn that the world was different now than it had been when I was a kid and that books were different now. And, um, and then I went and got a copy of the writer's marketplace, you know, the poets, whatever, whatever it was called, the children's writer's marketplace. Yeah. Um, because I, because that's what I would, t- I like, cause I had a copy of the poetry marketplace and had been using that. So I went and got the children's one at the bookstore in town and, um, and just started querying randomly. Um, and, and sort of sending things out into the void. And the internet was there, but social media hadn't happened yet. So everything was still, you know, self-addressed stamped envelopes. You know, you'd, you'd print out your manuscript and you'd put it in an envelope and send it out and it would come back to you all folded with coffee stains. And you'd sort of try to decide if you could print one or two pages or if you had to print the whole thing again um, and send it back out into the world again. And so I had a like piece of paper on my wall where I wrote down where I had sent it and what the date was and wait for the rejection and then just turn it back around the same way I had been doing with poems and got a lot of rejections. Um, and I had, at some point I finished a draft of my first novel. And so, so was sending out the novel and a few of my picture books and, uh, and then none of them went anywhere. And so I got close a few times, um, with something, but none of them went anywhere. And so eventually we left Iowa city, we got married and we moved to Atlanta and I, quit kind of for a couple of years. I, you know, I had a full-time job for the first time and like a full, full, full-time job, not restaurant work where I could take a week off or whatever. And, um, and then I had a baby and it, what nobody had told me is that babies are really boring and they <laughs> sleep a lot <laughs> and I didn't make enough money with my job. I was working nonprofit. I didn't have enough, make enough money with my job to pay the bills for a nanny so I stayed home with the kid and was just doing freelance stuff on the side and kind of anything I could do to make a little cash. But it just didn't financially make sense for me to not to pay somebody else to watch the kid so that I could make less than the nanny. Yeah. And sure. that was and then I sort of dusted off all these old manuscripts and was like, well, you know, theoretically, this is something I could sell to somebody. And um, and I now have the time to write again. And so that's really what happened. I started sending those same old manuscripts back out again. Um, you know, revi- revising them. and but, uh, but the world had changed and the market was different and people were more open to the things that I was sending out than they had been. And so then I sold my first picture book and my first novel in those years when my son was very small. And let's put, let's put dates on this, I guess, just to be concrete. If you put, sure. put that aside for a couple of years, and I, I, I can't recall at the moment when, when Slidey Diner came out, but it, it oh. would have been, I guess, a couple of years before that that you had... Um... Right. So I I would have written it in like 2001 Mm -hmm. and then set it aside. And then, um, 
we it came out I think in 2008. So it was in a drawer yeah, for a while, okay. and then it was produced. Then it took a couple of years to come out. And the same, both my first picture book and my first novel came out in that same year, 2008. Uh, which so by then I had a, a four year old and a one year old. Um, so it really was. It was sort of this interesting thing where my life kind of condensed and and suddenly I was writing and publishing and I had children and like <laughs> yeah. condensed condensed like, around thematic like, like consistency. So right. Yeah. Yeah. It was I had nothing going on and then suddenly my entire life was full, but I felt like you gotta you gotta lean in when the chance appears. So Sure. Okay. Sure. <laughs> um I was gonna ask though, is Slidey Diner the book that got your agent? No. So I sold that one by myself. That happened first. Um, I didn't have an agent. I I had hit walls everywhere I went and been rejected by like everyone in the business. Mm -hmm. And, um, and uh, so I, I made that deal myself. I had like a lawyer friend look it over to make sure there weren't any glaring dangers. Right. Um, And I sold it for a thousand dollars. And uh, I like to talk about money. I feel like it's dangerous I, that we. Don't. I love that. Yes. Oh my gosh, Laurel. We were just talking about that. A friend of mine and fellow kidlit writer Ebony Mud is. She is so generous with her with her time. I won a critique from her, and she wanted to do a pre Zoom um, critique to just you know talk about what I wanted from the the piece, what I was going for, you know, so she could critique it in a way that was helpful. Uh-huh. And we talked for like two hours and I, we ended up talking about money and publishing and all this stuff. And I was like, this is so great because, and I always am like, you know, do you mind telling me about, you know, right. whatever, because some people don't want to talk about it, which I totally get. But I think we need to, especially in this industry, because nobody knows so no, nobody it's knows really... what to ask for or what is yeah. out there. You know what I you, mean? So I you... thank you for your openness. Oh, of course. And I'm happy to say any numbers, the opacity around money is dangerous to us. Right. Right. Like, Agreed. It, it does not benefit the artist. So, um, so I sold that first picture book for a thousand dollars to tricycle press. Oh, and, tricycle. Pre- I love the name yeah. of that press. Is it still around? Do you know? No, they were bought by Amazon or they were bought by random house. Oh, okay. I don't know how many years, like 2010 or 11, maybe. Okay. That's a um, great name. Tricycle press. <laughs> it was, yeah. So I, I sold that to tricycle cause I was, and that was my approach was like, I'm going to start I had sort of hit walls and I was like, I want to find a couple of smaller independent presses that do books that I love. Um, so I sold that to Tricycle. And then I had this novel that I had been sending out for years by that point. Um, and I had had a very, basically I sent it to like info at Random House. Like somebody had put out an open call from Random House Young Readers. And again, this was back in the days of paper. So it it wasn't, it like, I think there just weren't as many submissions as there are now. Yeah. But um, this very nice editor had put out a call, like new young editor. Uh, and I wrote it, I sent it to her and it took like six months and I finally got a rejection. But the rejection said that she had been hoping to hold it for a series of fairy tale novels they were going to do. And then ultimately they hadn't done the series of fairy tale novels. Like the idea was it would be like multi-author, you know, like, a loosely yeah. federated group of, and, um, and I wrote back to her looking back at it, like this was the big moment because you're not supposed to do this, but I wrote back to her and said, thank you so much for your very nice rejection. Yeah. Um, in the, in the six months since, since I sent it to you, I've revised it. Can I please send it to you again? Um, 
and oh, wow. your own R and R. I love that. You're like, yeah. look. <laughs> I, I was like, I've I've been working on it. But she was very specific that the character wasn't strong enough, and mm, okay. that sort of I was like, okay, I like. So I said, like, I've worked on it, and then while I waited for her response, I like dove back in and tried to strengthen the characters. Um, what's What's funny is. Yeah, well, that it worked out for you. What's funny is that we've got a lot of a lot of moments on this podcast of like I I wasn't supposed to do this, but I did it right. anyway. It worked out, which is a little bit totally. dangerous to put out there in the world. <laughs> I well, think you gotta you trust proceed, your gut. I think if you proceed with respect, like I think that there's a difference between trying to bang down a door and mm-hmm. like you know, like kind of peering in gently and going like, "Is anyone home?" Um, yeah, yeah. And to, and to just write back to say, you know, thank you. I mean, I know they, you know, they say not to do that either, but you know, it depends. Like sometimes you get this really nice rejection and I don't, you know, they don't always send personalized rejections either. So it's like, well, once they've sort of broken that rule, it's kind of like, well, I know you weren't, you don't usually do that. And I don't usually do this and we're not supposed to, but like, thank you. You know, I also feel like it's really significant that this was happening on paper. That, mm-hmm. that there's a slowness to the process of correspondence when you're writing a letter and there's not the pressure, right? Like if somebody is getting email, email, email in the face and somebody mm-hmm. sends an email, like if she had written me an email that said, sorry, I held this manuscript, liked it, can't take it. And I had immediately responded with thanks, like 10 seconds later, like, thanks so much for your reply. Can I send mm-hmm. it to you again? I suspect she would have said no. Yeah, um, there's something about getting a letter, opening a letter when you're ready to read it, setting it aside, coming back to it when you want to respond, having some time to think it over. You know, maybe you're drinking your coffee or you're taking a, you know, like it's just different than we all sit at our computers now. And just to open email is anxiety inducing, like just mm-hmm. to just to open up Gmail and decide I'm going to dive into the backlog of things I don't want to deal with. Mm-hmm. It's just a different emotion than opening a letter. Well, and to sit down and take the time and put, you know, pen to paper also, right? Like the very thoughtful, like diligent answer that comes with that, you know, or like it it takes a lot more um, thoughtfulness and awareness and, you know, that kind of thing too. So it, yeah, it means more. It's more meaningful. And you have to commit to it. You take it to the post office. You put the stamp on it. Like there are all these steps in the process where you stop and think, do I really want to send this? Do I really want to send this? Right. So to have Um, all that follow through, yeah, at every step, it, it, it means something. Yeah. Yeah. And I do talk about this with kids a lot. Like, like that, that sort of what I learned from her name was Lisa Finley and then she left the industry. But like what I learned from Lisa Finley was, if you can say to somebody, thank you so much for your helpful advice, <laughs> like I'm going to listen and do what you said, there's like a handshake there. There's like mm. a there's like a respect of the editor or the agent um, that that sort of makes it easier for people to help you. And she really did. Like she then called me and kind of talked me through revision notes and we did it again. And then so then that manuscript was going to go into committee she was taking it to committee. And at that point I realized like I had learned enough about the business by then to know like, this is my moment. And I went and queried like 20 agents that day. And I was like, I have my first manuscript is going into committee at random house. I don't have an agent. Um, And I had immediately a bunch of offers and I discounted all of those because they hadn't read the manuscript. (laughs) And and there (laughs) were like, there were like three people who were like, what an interesting situation. Can I take a look at the book? Um, and Sorry. that's, so that's how I ended up with an agent was so, to read the book. 
Laurel, what does it mean to go into committee? Is that like similar like to acquisitions, acquisitions or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah? Okay, That's... I just wanted to to make sure because there's so many there's so many publishing terms too that you're sort of yeah. like. I don't know. And a lot of them are specific to certain houses. So that's, that's another piece of the puzzle, right? Like it's really hard to keep track of that kind of stuff. Right. And talking about that is helpful too. I had had that happen once before with a picture book that never sold, um, where somebody at Houghton Mifflin had said, can I, I, I'm going to take this to an acquisition committee or whatever. Again, like maybe I'm using the wrong language. I feel like she said committee. No, but, I mean um, that that makes sense. I just wanted to to know like, you know, committee of of what? Like what do they like what do they do? You know what I mean? Like what well, what are they in like, charge of? <laughs> I do think that there's a difference between like I've worked with enough publishers now. I think some places it's very it depends on the imprint, right? If you have a small like if you're working I'm making this up cuz I don't know Wendy Lamb. But let's say you're working with Wendy Lamb and it's a small imprint. Like my middle grades are now at Harper at Harper Collins but within Walden Pond Press. Okay. Walden Pond is Debbie Kovacs and Jordan Brown. That's what Walden Pond is. And okay. it's some they're going to go and talk to other people within the HarperCollins world about it. They're going to maybe chat with the folks from Balzer and Bray. You know, they're going to talk with other people at HarperCollins Children's because. Okay. But, Under that umbrella to sort of make sure they're not competing with other. Right. The, right. There's going to. So I think what happens is that there's the imprint conversation and that might be very small or very big, depending on where you are. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that I was at Random House Young Readers, which is a much bigger, just a much bigger group of editors sort of working in concert. Mm. Walden Pond puts out much fewer, many fewer books a year and has just Debbie and Jordan. Jordan's the only editor working on those books. So really it's his decision what he wants to take on. He's then going to have to go and talk it over with other people at HarperCollins um, and get sort of feedback from other folks within the editorial community there. But at the end of the day, it's it's his editorial decisions that make the imprint. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once it's been through that sort of, depending on the structure, like a bunch of editors have laid eyes on it and talked about it in the office. Then I think it goes to like marketing and sales and, you know, the, the people who are like, well, we can't afford, you know, the production values that this book would require because it requires gilded pages or something. Right. Like, in the pages. Or right. 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 Which I, I want to put a pin in that so we can talk about endlessly ever after. <laughs> Because I have so many questions and it was so, I mean, I just, that seems yeah, like that would be like a thing. <laughs> that that book exists at all is kind of a miracle. But yeah. Um, but yeah. So I think that, I think that is my sense is that like, there's the editorial conversation and then there's the PNL conversation. There's the money conversation and, and then ultimately an offer. It's time for this week's book reviews. From John, The Bad Seed is a comedic gem that stays true to the signature brand of Jory John and Pete Oswald, delivering profound lessons. With humor and heart, the duo, the duo narrates the journey of a mischievous seed seeking a personality makeover. What makes this tale stand out is its exploration of the unfortunate circumstances that shape the seed's bad behavior, emphasizing that it never intended to be bad, but was molded by a harsh environment. Despite this, the real takeaway is the seed's determined effort to be good regardless of its past experience. We're rooting for you, Bad Seed. From Josh. Josh loves a good father-child story. Josh also loves a story about reading books. Josh also loves to be reminded to write with fewer words and to focus on the small. Min Lee and Gus Gordon's The Perfect Seat is a sparse text with an endearing illustration style that hits on all those things that Josh loves. It's just moose and child looking for a place to read a book, comparing seating options throughout. That's all there is to it. And for my review this week, there's a zombie in the basement by Stan Yan. 
This book is the perfect mix of fun and scary, creepy with a bit of heart, and the quirky ominous illustrations bring it all together. Make sure to grab this one today. And don't forget to get your own reviews and library requests in. They're the number one ways to help an author's sales. We have community shoutouts and merch. Help support the podcast and the Kidlit community with a shoutout of your own or check out Verse Show merch designed by The Maddie Frost. Or even better, leave us a review. It helps other people find us and it makes us feel good. Find all our links on Threads, Blue Sky, or at brunnetgenerate.com where you can sign up for our newsletter and even get the podcast delivered right to your inbox. And now, back to our show. Did... Yeah, in the in the lead up, and we're still talking about your first n- novel. In the lead up to your your first novel acquisition, did having um, I was going to say Triangle uh, Tricycle Press publish Slidey Diner do anything to advance your prospects? I mean, it certainly would have been an education. No, because it was all happening simultaneously. So mm. so I was sending out Slidey Diner and scratch. It was the the novel's called Up and Down the Scratchy Mountains, and um, I was I was I sending it. those out. Yeah simultaneously um so that i don't think i had like an offer in hand when i first started contacting lisa finley i think i think they sort of happened in the same months and it felt like it it was one of those weird moments where you're like something's happening like like these responses are different than they were six months ago or five years ago and you know i have played i had played a long game a very very long game but it felt like i was at the beginning of something for and sure. so ultimately, Lisa Finley did not publish Up and Down the Scratchy Mountains. Is that right? So she acquired it and then she left to go. She moved out. She left New York and became a teacher, which you, you can't argue with okay, somebody yeah. who leaves publishing to go become a school teacher. Yeah, uh, totally. And so then I then that book was handed off to Mallory Lore, who was her boss, who was the, I think at the time she was the editorial director or something. She became the publisher of Random House Young Readers. Um, and then ultimately, I think Random House Children's. But so I so I got passed off to her boss, who was wonderful, who worked with me on the book. And then the book came out. And th- I did another five books, four books. I think I did five altogether at uh, Random House novels. And then a bunch of picture books, too. So not I stayed at Random House for a very long time. Yeah. Uh, not through the same deal. No, 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 no. And that's a whole other conversation. I... um. I feel like this is going to take forever. But, no, we've uh, got time, please. Okay, so, so I it. sold I sold up and down the Scratchy Mountains to Mallory in a one book deal, um, because I was completely untested. I had no publishing yeah. history. You know, I'd Can done. You, do you mind Laurel telling telling us how much it was for? No, just to, it was to have like a baseline. That first deal, so that would have we signed that deal in two thousand five, I think. And that's a middle grade novel. And that's a middle grade, and it okay. came out in two thousand eight. Okay. And they paid me fifteen thousand dollars for it. Okay, it's it's so like, helpful to have a baseline. So thank you. I totally. just, I so appreciate that. I'm very like, happy. Forget to forget that. picture books. <laughs> well, admit, so my first picture book. I don't know if you've heard this part. Was a thousand dollars. Yeah, and I my first novel. Yeah. Okay, so my first novel was fifteen, and then um, and then some things happened uh, in quick succession. My husband lost his job. And remember, I was not employed at the time, and this was pre-ACA, so we were suddenly uninsured, and I had a one-year-old and was pregnant. Oh, man, yeah. And uh, I love this is I love to tell this story because um, it really shows showcases the humanity of publishing for all that we talk about it as this messy monolith, this 
you know, sort of inhuman thing. Um, And I went to my new agent who I, you know, this is all I had done so far with her. I had no idea what I was doing. I went to my new agent and I called her and I was, yeah, I called my mom. I called my best friend. I was like, Chris lost his job. We don't have any health insurance. And I, uh, I called my brand new agent and said, like, I, I'm in this situation. Is there, like, I don't really understand what you do yet. Um, can you help me Fair. get some, like, can you help me get some money? Yeah, right. <laughs> Please. <laughs> and she was like, well, that's not really what I do. <laughs> like, well, that's not how this works. She what said, you, you help like- me get money. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, what would you like to do for money? And how much money do you need? And I said, well, my husband was in a graduate program at that point with the, at Emory University here, which would have allowed us to buy health insurance. Um, but it was going to be like $8,000. So I said t- to Tina, to my agent, I said, I need $8,000 to get me through June of 2007. Like the, so the book hadn't come out yet. And, um, and she said, well, usually they don't buy another book from an untried author before the first book comes out because sort of, we're going to show them how well the book is going to do is going to convince them to buy another book from you. Um, but she said, let me try, let me see. And she called Mallory and basically said, Laurel's in a, like Laurel's having a challenge and could really use some money sort of, would you be open to a second book before the first book publishes? And they came back to me and were like, well, what, what could you do for $8,000? What do you have? (laughs) And I scrambled and was like, I could write a tribute. I could write a tribute to Edward Eager. Like that is something I know well enough. I've read those books, you know, so many times, like, and I love them and they are out of date and offensive and problematic at this point. (laughs) Um, But I love the model of those books, half magic, magic by the lake, seven day magic. Um, I would love to write a tribute to Edward Eager, like an updated version of that kind of book. And I think I could do that relatively quickly. And so, um, so they bought, they did, they, they gave me a, a two book deal. Was it a two book deal? Yes. They gave me a two book deal um, for about, I think the same amount of money. I think it was 15,000 with the understanding that my advance, my first check would be enough to cover my health insurance. And they wow. expedited it and I got my check and I bought my health insurance and I went to my gynecologist. <laughs> <laughs> and then I had to write a book. All your money? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I'm going to go big. <laughs> and then I had to write a book. And this all was just happening in this flurry. Wow. Uh, and so I wrote the book and it was terrible. <laughs> and they came back and were like, you need to rewrite this book. <laughs> But by then I, had, I was having a baby. So what I really remember is that Lewis was born in June of 2007. And the final draft, like the revision was going to be due in like August, at the end of August or something. Oh, my gosh. And my husband was finishing his degree and had to go to China and Japan as the like last part of his degree. <laughs> Perfect. So Great I had time. like a three-week-old baby and no husband and a one-year-old. Oh my gosh. And I got in the car and I drove to Baltimore, um, to my mom's house. And then she took the, my one-year-old and I would take the baby each day and go to our neighbor's house, which was empty 
and sit and do like eight hours of writing with this like little baby just sort of nursing intermittently. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, and I, it took a month. I, I revised the book in a month uh, in that state. This is a good story to retell, actually, because I'm about to start a new book and it feels insurmountable. And it's good to remember that like my conditions now are actually much better than they were then. <laughs> you've, you've been up and down the scratchy mountain. I have been uh, up and down. Yes. <laughs> Yes. And but we pulled it off, and and they bought the book, and um and subsequent books, and I I mean I I was very very grateful. I felt like Mallory and Random House really made our lives possible. And my husband finished school, and he got a job, and kind wow. of everything settled back down to normal. But it was people kids will ask me at school visits like what inspired any which wall. It's it's of all my books, it's the one that's sort of easiest for young like third and fourth graders often will read any which wall. It's not sad. It's not political. It's not, you know, and, um, and I, they say, what inspired any which wall? And I, it's always this funny moment of like, how much can I tell them? <laughs> like, sometimes we do things, and this is really important to me, actually, to say, it's really important to me that I do things for three reasons. I do things for art. I do things for love. And I do things for money. And I think it's really a disservice to not talk about the money part. That, that we Agreed. sometimes, even if we're like, I've been doing this since I was eight years old. It's my dream. I do all kinds of writing I don't get paid for. Um, you know, like it is art to me and that is why I do it. And if I wanted to just make money and I didn't want to make art, I would go and do something else because this is much harder than other things that I could do for the same amount of money. But sometimes we do things for money. And it, I feel like there's something in the artistic community that we're ashamed of that fact that like, it's somehow wrong to say like, no, right. I did this work for hire. Cause I had to, my car needed a body job, you know, or whatever. Right. Like, um, and that sometimes that's not your best work, but sometimes it's really good. Like sometimes you make really good work inspired by the need to put food on the table. And that's also okay. Or um, go to the gynecologist. I mean, so. and we should, I mean, we, you know, like a lot of this is so, it's such a different field to be in, right? Because it takes so much of yourself to put out there and we should get paid for it just because it's sort of an emotional journey and like a creative one and people don't think that it should be paid for. That's so not true. I feel like if anything, it should be paid, it should get more money, you know, cause you're sort of more, you're way more invested than like, you know, a telemarketer answering right. phones or like somebody like checking someone out at the grocery store and it's not any less valuable, you know? I, yes. And like, I, I mean, I, I go back and forth on this because I feel like in some ways, like I started out as a poet and there's no money attached to that world, right? It's an entirely, it's a gift economy. And there are ways in which it just creates its own weird currency of like cultural capital or what, you know, whatever, or, mm -hmm. or, or there's this, you lean the other direction of like, well, if I'm not going to get paid for this, then I'm going to make it inaccessible and something that, that like the bulk of the world doesn't want. Like we're going to keep it in this little corner where only some people can understand it. Same corner um, with the opera, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and, right. And, and I, so I, I feel like it's both that like on the one hand, like there's that set of problems. And then there's the other set of problems, which is that when capitalism enters the story, like if, if if you know that you're going to get paid more to write a book about a quirky animal character who learns a valuable lesson in three stages, right? Like, mm -hmm. that's what, like, I want to write Pete the Cat. I want to write, you know, whatever. Like, this is what works. This is what the market, like, what benefits from the market. It, like, it pushes you. So I feel like 
the more we talk about money in some ways, the, the harder it becomes to really ask ourselves, what do we really want to make? Like, mm. I'm not sure that, I don't even know how to talk about this. Like, that, that I think this is why I have it divided into these three categories. That like, I have this book here. I have like 150 picture book manuscripts that are not published. Mm. Mm. Um, oh, well, that's perfect for the dead manuscripts. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> I was linking to trying to figure out what to read, but, but that I, I make work because I make work and most of the time nobody wants to read it. And if that, if, if other people reading it or being paid for it were the reason I made work, I would probably stop. Mm. Right. Cause that's too much rejection. So it has to serve something that isn't just other people or like the reader or the market or whatever. Yeah. So, so there's that, there's that, that's what I mean when I say I make it for art, like I make it for me and for my 12 year old self or something. Yeah. Um, and then there are things that I do for love that like, you know, a cousin asks you for a poem for a wedding. It's not going to be great art. It's also not going to make you any money, but you do it because there's one audience, right? There's one reader. There's one somebody. It's like writing a letter. Yeah. Um, and then there's money. And I feel like all three of those things are valid and, and relevant. Um, but sometimes you have to ask yourself in a moment, like if I'm feeling rejected because nobody wants to give me money for this particular manuscript, it's probably not a money manuscript. Mm. You know, and if I can't, if I can't think of anyone who would like to read something, but I want to write it, it's for me. And, and that it's not, I feel like sometimes we're trying to come up with like one right answer. Like, why do you do this? Or, mm-hmm. you know, why well, does art matter or something? I mean, and that's, that's the funny thing about money too, is there's, there's not one right bit of money advice either. Right. There's yeah. $1,000. There's $15,000 for a debut picture book. There's, you know, $1,000 yep. for a, a middle grade. It's, it's up and down the spectrum. And that's, it's hard to sort of put, put concrete advice um, on that. Right. And you can't compare, right? My first no. advance yeah. and somebody else's first advance can't be compared because we wrote different things for different reasons. We're looking and, and, and this should guide, I think everybody's like your personal journey, your personal goals, the art you want to make should guide your search for an editor or an agent or a publisher or whatever, a magazine that's going to be the, or, or self-publishing. Like mm-hmm. if I write a cookbook of family recipes because my grandmother just passed, I'm going to self-publish that and make 50 copies of it and give a copy to every member of the family. The idea that I should ever write to publish that at HarperCollins because I happen to be a published author, that's just silly. Like nobody wants to read my grandmother's recipes but me. And Maybe it's a really different, do. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but you also have different, different like um, perspectives about success too, right? Like what it means to be successful. Like yes. it, like getting published, you know, in like a magazine that doesn't pay you, but you, you finally are published and you have something right. in your hand that you can hold. That's a big deal for somebody who hasn't had that before. So I, yeah, you're right. And also it's sort of a Venn diagram, I think, where those three sort of overlap, right? Money, art, and love. And when mm-hmm. they can overlap, it's like, okay, that's that's great. But I mean, you're absolutely right. Like I've written all kinds of stuff for family members because I feel like that's a way that I that I prefer to show people that I care about them. I don't like to buy things, you know, Correct. just extra yeah. stuff like candles and like, you know, whatever, just so people can have something. I much prefer to just tell them like, this is, this is what I think, or like, here's this cool story I wrote about you or like, this is how, cause it takes time and energy and that's the thing I like to do. So, yes. I, I mean, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I think that's, that's totally yeah. right on and it. It's different for everybody. And there are other reasons too. Those are just the three that I tend to think about, but like I review for the New York times, that's not love art or money. 
Like they, they pay very little. I do that because I'm participating in a community of thinkers mm-hmm. and because it makes me feel fancy, to be perfectly honest. Like, <laughs> that's all right. Fancy is the fourth, the fourth yeah, right. the like, diagram. I love that. I mean, yeah. That's shameful. I, like, right? I grew up reading the New York Times. It makes me feel like I'm part of an important tradition. Oh, like, totally. Right. Cool, right. You like, need a top hat and a monocle. Does that job come right, with that? Exactly. I mean, I think that it should. Floral. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so enchanted by that, but it's, it's funny. Uh, it's funny pulling, pulling some of that apart because there, there is conventional wisdom that says don't write to spec or to a specific MSWL for an agent or editor, because that's like saying you won't be successful unless you split the arrow with your next shot Mm -hmm. like that. It's not, it's not feasible. However, there is something to this notion of um, the, the negotiation around what you can write that will be commercial, writing to commercial mm-hmm. taste or writing, you know, d- diversifying yourself and writing IP. There are a lot of other avenues aside from the traditional, you know, write your art, try and write more art until you sell your art um, that can sort of diversify you. And, you know, your your note around writing reviews for the New York, New York times is a perfect example of, you know, just get, get yourself out there and diversify, keep writing, keep, keep putting things out there and participate in the community to your point. Well, and again, I wouldn't, I, I don't know that I would give this as advice to others. What I would say to other people is you have to figure out who you are and then use that as like the compass by which you decide what you want your career to look like. Mm-hmm. I'm a messy person. I've been living my life. I've been blogging since 1998. Like I've been living myself online in a public messy way that has caused me all sorts of problems for a really long time <laughs> because that's an extension of who I am. Sorry, and not sorry. Who, yeah. <laughs> right. No. And who I am, it gets me into trouble, but it is at this point, I'm almost 50. Like I've accepted it. Like this is who I am. I am somebody who's going to do micro press collections of poetry that no one's ever going to read for no money. And I also two years ago took a, like a job converting a German video game into a picture book that no one like you've never seen because because it was a work for hire gig in the middle of a pandemic when I was making no money and I was having a really hard time writing. And the idea of a project where I was being given a story and a structure sounded really wonderful and they yeah. gave me ten thousand dollars to do it. And like, and it sounds so, really quirky and fun. I mean, yeah. what a challenge! It, it, it totally was, but it it. I guess my point is like, if I tried to come up with a set of rules by which I decided what to write, mm. I would neither do the micro press collection of poems that no one's ever going to read, nor would I do the like if I were looking for a middle line or like a lowest common denominator that was like this is what is acceptable to do. Mm. Um, so I feel like my real question is like, can I find a good reason to do it? And, and if, if the answer is, I have a couple of books out there in the world, and I'm not going to name names, but like that I don't feel good about, that I look back and think I didn't ask the question. Hmm. I, I did that for the wrong reason. And that's why it's not good. Hmm. But it doesn't yeah. all have to be high art. And it doesn't all have to be commercially viable. And it doesn't all have to like make your mother proud. Like there, there's, there's a million different reasons to do things. Good moms will be proud no matter what the reason is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love my mother very much. Yeah. I, um, I will say I'm going to look at all your books now and go like, is this the one that Laurel hates? You'll know. <laughs> yeah. You'll know. Some of it's better than others. It just is. Like, right, that's, right. They can't all be your best book. And I've published more than 30 books at this point. So, yeah. you know, like. Awesome. 
Okay, before before we get like too far into, can we please talk about Endlessly Ever After? I keep bringing it up, but I am like fascinated with that book. So I much just, more to cover too, yeah. I Yeah, so much more. But I also, I mean, I just, I can't tell you how much we love that book. Like my son is just like fascinated, right? Because there's so many endings and it's, I mean, choose your own adventure picture book. Like that's a very yeah. specific kind of book. You don't usually find that in picture books. And it's just like, I don't know how you pulled it off. I recently tried to write my own. It's like a mind bender. It's and very I just, hard. It's yeah. true. I, and, and my reflection on this too, uh, and I hope maybe you'll indulge us with this request and then also with Dead Manuscript Society. Um, the, the first time that I read the last page of Endlessly Ever After, the thought, mm-hmm. the first thought that occurred to me was like, if I ever got a tattoo of words on my body, it would be Aww. this notion of agency over your own life and choosing your own path. And I just, I, I set it down and I went, oh, oh my gosh, Aww, thank you. <laughs> not to fawn too much, but it, it, it truly is. Uh, it's, it's a great book. Thank you. Um, it, so first of all, thank you for that, because it's important to me that if it had just been a choose your own adventure picture book with some wild rides, um, I don't think I would have put, like, it was a mammoth project, as you know. Um, it took us eight years to finish that book. Oh, okay, and that helps put through, it into perspective. Holy it, cow. Okay. Don't expect yeah. it on your first draft, Brent. <laughs> it went through, no, it went through many, many incarnations. It started much smaller. It became much bigger, but then it got peeled. Like, there were threads that got pulled back. Um, uh, I worked on it and worked on it and worked on it. And then it took us a long time to sort of figure out who could take this thing on. It's a 90 page full color, huge project yes. for an artist. Um, and I got very, very lucky in that Dan Santat happened to be here and we had lunch, dinner. We had dinner with my kids indicator and she was like, what are you working on? And I told him about it. And he's like, Oh, have him send it to me. And I thought, Oh my gosh, Dan could actually do it. Like, right. Like Dan Santat could handle this. Um, so, so, and then it, he was actually relatively quick with it, but like, it really took Melissa Manlove and I a long, long time to figure out what it needed to be. That thread, the one that you're referring to, um, is sort of the whole point, right? Like I began, lots of things changed over those eight years, but I knew from the beginning that if, if I was going to bother with a choose your own adventure, there needed to be a reason why it demanded that gimmick. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and this is, I was just going to show you. So this is my first choose your own adventure. It's called Daphne and Jim, a choose your own adventure biography and verse. It is oh. a collection of adult poems that I wrote. It published in 2005. I started working on it, I think in like 2001. Um, but it's a collection of poems that are an imaginary investigation of my parents' courtship and marriage. Um, oh, interesting. Like, so I imagined <laughs> based on the mythology that I've been given sort of what my parents, so the the book, you can either follow Jim or you can follow Daphne. And then there are these bird's eye poems where you have to kind of come through the center. So you can either follow Daphne's story or you can follow Jim's story, or you can go through this, this overview sort of third, like omniscient third point. Oh, cool. Um, But similarly, it was like, I knew that in order to do this story, I needed to, my parents do not get along, all right, have not been married for a very, very, very long time. That in order for me to imagine that narrative, I needed to, I needed a a form that would let me investigate different perspectives without blending them together, that would hold two voices as discrete voices. Mm. So sort of, it was a gimmick, but it was a gimmick that was demanded by the project. And Mm -hmm. it felt the same way. It felt like endlessly ever after, belongs to be a choose your own adventure because at the end of the day, it's a book about 
how important it is that we make choices. We don't just sort of stumble along a dark path. Um, and that that felt just right for a, as a form. And I tried other things first. I, I knew Melissa and I wanted to do a choose your own adventure picture book. Um, and I actually tried to make this book hungry Jim into a choose your own adventure. Like basically like, do you want to wake up? Like, cause he wakes up one morning, he's a lion and in the original version, it was like, do you want to eat your mom or not eat your mom? Oh, awesome. Yeah, I was going to mention Hungry Jim, and I love that that was going to be a choose-your-own-adventure at one point. I can totally see that. Yeah, absolutely. It made a kind of sense. It was called Hungry Jim, a book about choices. And um, it was like, but but that created this binary of good choices, bad choices, right? And I didn't like that. Like that, that felt, and Melissa, I sent it to Melissa, and she was like, no, this isn't the one. Write that, like, I'll buy that as a straight book, but like, now go find something else. And so we sort of found our way to fairy tale. Awesome. So, wait, what Melissa. A situation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But <laughs> like, I, wait. I'll, I'll go ahead and buy this, uh, but it'll write me something no. else too. Yeah, too. right. But yeah. also writes, yeah. But Melissa is the editor. Is that correct? Yeah. So, I Melissa just want to okay. is the editor of almost all my picture books for the last decade. Um, okay. And she and I have an extraordinary, it's an unusual relationship in publishing. Um, it's really sort of a creative correspondence that results in weird things. And again, <laughs> most of the time it doesn't like I write lots and lots of things for Melissa that she does not buy. Mm. Um, so I don't want to give the illusion that it's easy. It's not. Um, and, and I've sent, uh, we're actually, I'm going to see her next month and, uh, and, and, like I like, she is the only person who's read all 150 unpublished manuscripts. Like oh there's gosh. plenty of things she doesn't want, but yeah. um but so then, then endlessly ever after, sort of demanded that form. It felt like it felt like fairy tales, the dark forest of the fairy tales, a young girl choosing her way along a path. Some of these choices she knows she's making. Some of these choices she's sort of making without even realizing she's making choices. Mm -hmm. There are some pages where she has two choices and they result in the same thing, which mm -hmm. is also you know sometimes in life you're faced with what you think is an important choice. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you're going to end up where you're going to end up anyway. And sometimes you're faced, you don't even realize you have a choice, but what you do, whether you blink or you don't blink can take you in wildly different directions, um, sort of butterfly effect stuff. And so there really was just a huge amount of energy and effort that went into that project. Yeah. Um, and then they made this just extraordinarily beautiful object out of it, which I felt so lucky about. You, it, I can see that it would take a particularly collaborative relationship to get to that book in itself. But was it a hard fight for you or Melissa or both of you to, to no, it wasn't. No, I think Chronicle is unusual. Melissa is unusual. Um, the best way possible, apparently. <laughs> in the, yes. No, Melissa is trying to find a, I, I mean, I, I don't want, she'll kill me if I, she ends up with a flood of manuscripts that make no sense. But like, <laughs> Melissa, I think, is an editor who is looking to say yes in a world of editors who are often trying to find a way to say no because they are mm. so overwhelmed and inundated, you know? I think she is looking to do books that most people won't do. Um, and it, it has to really have a heart. It has to really need to exist. Like, she's mm. not looking to make arbitrary things. But she is looking to do things that I think not everybody has the vision to imagine. Um, when I took her, Swan was the first book we did together, this biography of Anna Pavlova. And I knew that I only wanted to do this book if I was allowed to do the death scene, which most picture book biographies don't mm -hmm. have. And so that's why I went to Melissa. Is she had been talking online about dark picture books and sort of in, in a more generous way than a lot of people do. 
and I took it to her and she said she wanted to buy it. And I said, how are you going to sell this dead ballerina to children? And she, cause the death scene is so important. Like it's such, it's, it is the reason for the book mm. is the final spread of the book. Um, and, and if you think about it, there's often an afterword or an author's note that explains that the main character died because almost all picture book biographies are about people who are dead, <laughs> but very rarely do we see that part of their story. That's so true. I, it's, I mean, that is such a good point. And you, it's, you can't just pretend it didn't happen. So no, exactly. I, mean, I love right. that you're really fighting for that. Yeah. And I, and I took it to her and I said, I said, sort of, how are you going to sell this? And she said, we're going to make it so beautiful. People have to buy it. And they did. They like made this object that is glittery and beautiful. Wow. And Julie Morstead's art is extraordinary. But like her brain just works differently in that way. Um, she is trying to find a way to, to way to create a book as something that people need and want, even if they don't know that they need and want it. Laurel. Wow. What a career moment just to, ha to have someone express for something that you created we're going to make this so beautiful that it's unignorable or that yeah. people have to consume it is so uh i mean i don't want to put words in your mouth but for me it would be so gratifying it would be like you know there's nowhere to go but down from here uh <laughs> what an honor it, it does feel that wow. way Her, this relationship does feel that way and i do feel like i do feel like this tends to be an industry where people want to give prescription they want to offer best practices. They want to, I mean, they're like, you know, this is what we do. Like, how do you get published and what should you do and how do you format mm -hmm. your, you know, whatever. And, and I think it's really important to remember that these are all individual relationships mm -hmm. and every book is individual. Every relationship with an editor or an agent is individual. There is no one right way to do these things. And I really feel like for me anyway, the more authentic I am, the more of myself I bring, I may get doors shut in my face as a result, but they're not the doors that I want anyway. And right. I know that I say this from a position of privilege of having started in this business a long time ago and having established relationships now. But, but I, 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 I do just genuinely believe that if you, if you bring your full self and you look for real relationships rather than sort of a door you can bang down, um, ultimately what you get is more rewarding. I mean, it's good to acknowledge operating from a, a place of, privilege, of course, but I think what we've learned about your journey in the last hour is that, you know, you, you operated by that same ethos when you had little babies and when you were struggling to, you know, make doctor's appointments and things. It's, yeah. It was the relationships that, that made it possible for you then as well, not just the knocking on doors. Yeah, no, that's true. I think, I mean, I think you try every door, yeah. but then you enter carefully, you know, like, like yeah. I'm, I'm definitely an ambitious person. Like I'm definitely somebody who, who went after and does go after what I want. Um, I just, I know that not everything is something I want. Um, okay. I promise this is the last time I'll bring up endlessly ever after. I just have a few more questions. <laughs> I just, so if, Okay, so you and Melissa Manlove are working on this manuscript. I just, how does that, like, how does that look? Like, are you meeting together and you're physically, because to do a choose your own adventure, I am realizing, right, you can't just be like, here it is and send it off to somebody. Like, you kind of have to send it with like a map of like, this is what I'm going for, or at least like color code it. Like, how did she, how did she look at it or like critique it for lack of a better term? Like, I have a I'm not somebody with a really tight memory. I, so I, 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 that's, I worry that's fair. I just, 
<laughs> I worry sometimes that I'm somebody who tends to make up a story because I want to fill in the blank. Um, my memory is that she saw many drafts over the years and that it got bigger Mm-hmm. And that there were several, well, first of all, she, bege- like, there were several conversations that sort of happened simultaneously that contributed to the creation of the project. She, her memory is that she wanted to make a Choose Your Own Adventure picture book. I had already done this Choose Your Own Adventure collection of, of poems. And so I don't, like, in my memory, I wanted to do that. But so we were both sort of circling the same kind of idea. She also had the desire for a picture book that would overlap, um, the the myth of uh, Persephone. Oh, okay. And Demeter, um, that she wanted to do like a Snow White. At one point, she, I should, probably shouldn't talk about this because it hasn't happened yet. And we've worked on it in different ways. But um, so like, anyway, the point is we were sort of circling various different and I was working on Hungry Jim and like there were sort of a bunch of different things happening. At some point it came together that we were going to do, I was going to do like Little Red Riding Hood as my way into fairy tales in a choose your own adventure format. Then I sat down and I wrote a draft of something. And I remember that phase um, and sent it off to her. And then there was just a lot of like, what, like more to this thread or what about this character? Or I don't think this is, this page is working as well as these. I mean, there was, but it, so there was a lot of editorial back and forth, but I don't remember the details of exactly how that happened. And then at some point I sent her the way, and the way that I was working on it was it's just a word document. Um, but what I would do is I would write these individual threads, these poems, sort of as, starting starting out like as discrete little stories. So like, you know, Rosie going to visit Cinderella or Vo- Rosie going to visit Sleeping Beauty or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would lay them out on the floor in my room. And then I would just take a Sharpie and scribble the page numbers to try to sort of how am I going to connect them back to each other? So it was okay. a very messy analog process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He just spread all over with me scribbling out page 42 and rewriting page 36. And, yes. <laughs> and, then it, and then pulling it together and stapling it into a book and kind of flipping around a lot to make sure it works. And then I went through and paginated it and rearranged them all so that they were out of order in an yep. order that fit. And then I sent yeah. it to them and then they made a map. And okay. I think that was- Directions at that point where like they fix some of my mistakes. Yeah, because you'd have to, you know, to follow it and be like, yeah, this works or this doesn't work or like, where does this go? Because just thinking about that is sort of like really mind bending, you know? So yeah, no, like it, without writing it out physically, I was totally like lost in the weeds and what you're saying yes super messy because I'm like well this overlaps over here and then like this goes nowhere and then this page has to flip so like I have to and the thought of like scribbling. The problem is that the only way I can see, I don't think that making it easier is actually a better solution. Like I think that part of the process of finding, figuring out which paths are, so some of them are short and funny and some of them are long and philosophical, right? Mm -hmm. Like figuring out, like if I were to use like, I mean, I think there are like computer programs that will do it, but they will be prescriptive on some level about keeping things balanced or Mm -hmm. whatever. And I, I, I needed it to be its own messy process. Um, and we just signed the contract. I, I'll tell you, we just signed the contract for a sequel. Um, what? So- Laurel, I'm so excited. Oh my gosh. Do we have to cut that out or can we leave that no, in? No, no, you can, you can leave that in. But, oh, that's um, so exciting. I'm not going to tell you any more about it until I've actually. That's okay. Yeah, yeah okay. But wow, so congratulations. Taking a deep, they were like, how, like, when do you want to put as the deadline, the delivery date for the sequel? And I was like, oh, God. Eight years <laughs> Not from eight now. years. No, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh, I hope Dan works on it again. Is it a joint? Can you say? Or I'm not going to say. say okay, okay, okay. I'm sorry. I just got so excited. And I love, I just love that, that Dan took it on. And then this is, this is the last I'll say about it because I mean, I'm just such a fan. I'm sorry. I'm like gushing about it so no, much, no. but I just, I love it so much. And I, so I recently got, I went down to um, Illinois, which is close to me. And I got to see Dan um, on his book tour for mm-hmm. um, a first time for everything. So yes. Good, and I, yes, it's so good. And I just finished it. And I read, I read the whole thing, right? So I read the back part and where, and you're in there. He thanks you mm-hmm. specifically for taking a look at it. And I just was like, oh my gosh, I don't know. It, it like touched me in a way. Like I, I just, I kind of love that you guys have this friendship and it, it just, you know, this back and forth and this sort of like, it just, it makes you feel good. Cause like you were saying, you know, in this world of publishing, that seems sort of like, you know, inhumane and cold and sort of robotic I just I just kind of love that these like relationships form you know and there's this back and forth that just the best best thing children's literature has is the relationships yeah agree we all love the books but more than that we all love children yeah and we respect children and I think that there is something about that the fact that we are serving kids that transforms and strengthens our relationships with each other um, and with the education community and the literacy community and the publishing and book selling and library communities, like it's just it, like the best. And so, you know, yeah, like, honestly, I don't, it's very rare that I work with somebody at this point that isn't either somebody I have a relationship or somebody I'm building a relationship with. I, I feel like yeah. we're all just really good people. Yeah. yeah. Very yeah good. Cause we're, we're all in service of such, it's such a fun and rewarding end product. It's so yep. mission driven. Yeah. And that doesn't make it easy and that doesn't make it lucrative. Like, like it's, you, there's nothing certain, but I know that the people I'm working with are good people working on something that matters. And that's huge. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. We are, we're now over an hour. Uh, I, I, didn't know. Get to ask you, I didn't get to ask you about Charlie and Mouse. Can we talk about that for just just Very, a second? Yeah, um, in, no. in the briefest way, I'm I'm curious how that series came together. The, so that's one that I did for love and got very very lucky about. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote those essentially. I had been making these little Facebook posts about my kids, um, and people kept saying like, "Oh, you should put that in a book," as they do. And um, and I was like, "But there's no story." Easier said like, than done, right? Yeah, right, like there's, totally. Like, yeah, my kid's cute, and so is yours. <laughs> like, I'm not right? Doing that. Let's make a book. Um, and uh, and then uh, there's a there's a an educator uh, there's an educator named Susanna Richards who came to Atlanta to do some work, and we had met each other through a conference or something. I don't even remember now. And she came over, and we took a walk in my neighborhood. And so it was sort of in the back of my head that I wanted to do something with these these moments from my children's lives. Um, and we took a walk and she said, I live in a really special neighborhood, which is actually the setting for the, my last couple novels. Um, and, uh, and she said, you live in a really special place. There aren't a lot of neighborhoods like this anymore. You should write about it. And that night I went to sleep sort of thinking, huh, like neighborhood stories, like, like sort of really rosy, sort of thinking about thinking about books in which in which there is a neighborhood and um and this is this is like the people hate this story um I woke up at like three in the morning and I knew what to do and I was basically like frog and toad set in a neighborhood with the moments from my Facebook posts kind of smooshed together 
and I sat down and I wrote the first couple of stories. I mean, like basically the first book, um, like in the middle of the night in one sitting. And I sent it to Melissa and she just wrote back mine exclamation point. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. seven o'clock in the morning or whatever it was. And that was it like that. And so that never happens. I want to say some books take eight years. Um, Some books like the novel that I've just finished have to be rewritten soup to nuts five times. And you think they're never going to work out. Like there's, there's all different ways. Charlie and mouse is the single example I have of something coming easily, an editor seeing it for what it was. And then it basically being produced almost exactly as the first draft. Was oh, written. wow. Oh, my gosh. How rewarding. That's well, it's so rare. It's so rare. And it's been so lucky. And then it won Geisel. And I was sort of like, I guess that's the one. Like, I got yeah. one. Like, you get one of these. <laughs> wow. I mean, the, pra- the practical, I guess, takeaway of that exploration, I think, is fascinating. And, and something that, that I, I try and have inform my writing as well is that okay, maybe you didn't have to rewrite those books five times each, but but what's informed by them are, are a lifetime of memories that sort of wrote themselves onto the page. And that yeah. is its own form of, you know, hashtag counts as writing. For you. Totally. No, I, I genuinely believe that. And I actually have, I have a lecture I've been doing lately called The uh, Craft of Daydreams about, about that, about like, how That's do lovely. we... How do we do better at the work that we don't recognize as work? Like, how do we Mm. make time for and prioritize all of the dreaming and the memories and the the play and the sleep and the resting brain, you know, like all of the, all of that stuff that we we're actually, I should give a plug. Aaron and Trada Kelly and I are doing a highlights thing. I don't think we've officially launched this yet, but I think it's okay. Um, we're doing a highlights uh, retreat this fall. Uh, that's basically called middle grade summer camp what? where we're going to do, we're just going to do the fun stuff, like not just, but we're going to, we're going to lean away from workshop and into generative play, like sort of, like storytelling oh walks and fire, like fire circles and like Bre- just Bren make- is already, yeah, Brenda's already signed up. <laughs> I know I have so many questions. Like, so we can come to highlights and like hang out and do this retreat and you'll be there and we can like, just, it'll be me and Aaron play. and be best friends. <laughs> yes. Basically the, that was the point is like, this is what we come to these things for anyway. But then we pretend that we're there to take a workshop, but really right. we just want to hang out and share our stories with you. Yes. Each other. And talk about yeah. writing. Yes. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Okay. Laurel, I have to, I'm going to watch for this and I'm going to be there <laughs> and I'm so excited. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Um, okay. Okay. Cause I know we, we've taken up so much of your time. And no, you've been so generous. I just realized I should have mentioned that I have a novel coming out in May. Oh yeah. Let's really some, some yeah. Please. Yes. Tell us, tell us what it it's is. Called, it's called the witch of woodland. Oh yes. I've seen that come. I've seen the cover. It's beautiful. Thank you. Yes. By, uh, Cor- Cornelia, um, Lee is her name. She's a very, very talented artist, did the cover. Um, it is about a girl named Zippy. And Zippy, uh, her mom comes home one day and says that it's time to begin getting ready for her bat mitzvah. And Zippy isn't sure why that that's the case, because her family never goes to synagogue and she's not par- sure her parents even believe in God. And she's like, what sort of, why are we doing this? But the main reason she's confused is that she doesn't think she believes in these things because she is a witch. Um, she has been practicing witchcraft since she was five years old. Very and cool. So it's, it's about like conflicting world beliefs and, you know, like trying to make space for all these different layers of our identities. And But it's also about magic and witchcraft. And she conjures someone. She conjures a, a creature and then kind of doesn't know what to do with it. And oh, that's so, so cool. Fun. Yeah. So cool. I don't know. We'll see. 
May 16th. Requested from your libraries, everybody. It's yes, please. Awesome. Requested from your library. I'm, really, I'm bad yes. at this part. I'm, I'm not so good at the like telling. I think, right. We. I feel like we all are. No. Yeah. Request and pre-order. It's going to be awesome. I saw the cover. It looks amazing. Yeah. The authentic, authenticity sells books. You don't That's have to. Do, you don't have to do. <laughs> Speaking as a communications professional, I don't work in marketing. I work in communications. So storytelling gotcha. sales. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, um, exactly. Laurel, will you do Dead Manuscript Society? Do you have one that I you would will. like to read? Yes. I, uh, I have six more funny. hours to read through all of the, uh, <laughs> the I'm going to read. Well, I, it's funny. I was going to, now I'm sort of tempted to read a book. I have this thing called a book about money that oh. will never get published. Where is it? Oh, maybe it's not. I was going to read this other one, but now that we've been talking about money so much, it made me want to yeah, read the money book. Where is it? Here it is. So it's called Money is Money. And uh, maybe it's awful. I haven't read it in years. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect for the Dead Manuscript Society. We'll enjoy this okay. journey together. Yep. It's called Money is Money. Money is nice when I have some. Today, I have a penny. I found it under the couch, just one dusty penny. But if I put my penny in a coffee can and I do it again tomorrow and I do it again the day after and the day after that and every day all summer long, in the fall, I'll have a dollar, which is exactly enough to buy a water gun or a comic book or a matchbox car or my friend Danny's pet snake that he caught under the porch. That sounds pretty good to me. If I put a dime in a coffee can every single day, Next week, I'll have a dollar. Hmm. You know what else? Money is not so nice when I have none. When I have no money, no water gun, no matchbox car, no comic book at all. The problem is, it's not always so easy to save my money. Because, you know, candy. <laughs> and then I have to start all over again saving more money when I find some. If I find some. If I put a quarter in a coffee can every single day, in a year, I'll have almost $100. Wow. That's enough to buy a skateboard and a hamster and 100 bouncy balls, plus the snake and the water gun and everything else, too. <laughs> Lucky for me, while I'm saving, there are plenty of things that do not cost any money, like a fort made of pillows, a jar full of lightning bugs, a stomp in the rain, a good game of tag, raspberries from the bush next door. And the snake my friend Danny did not catch under the <laughs> If I put a dollar in a coffee can every day for my whole life and I live to be 87, I will have $31,755. And that is enough to buy all the matchbox cars and bouncy balls and water guns in the world, pretty much. Or maybe a tiger. <laughs> Though then I will have to buy a tiger house and tiger food and that will get expensive. Still, money is nice when I have some. In fact, money is nice, and I need some sometimes. Like when I forget to take back my library books, and my mom says, that'll have to come out of your pocket, sir. Money doesn't grow on trees. And I guess she's right. But there are things money can't do. Money can't keep my snake in this box or turn today into my birthday. Money can't make the thunder stop or change the rain to snow. Money is money. People buy things with it. Food to eat and clothes to wear and a house to live in and books and toys and also boring things like paper clips and rubber bands, in addition to tigers. Sometimes I have a lot of money and sometimes I have a little money and sometimes I have no money at all, which reminds me, maybe I should get myself a bigger coffee can. Oh, 
That was so good. I feel like so much heart and like it was it was really well done with a with like very few words. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So really 31,000 if you saved a dollar a day I guess you must have done the calculation way back. When. I'm sure I, not that's not my strength, but I did, I did use a calculator. So. <laughs> that's why the manuscript didn't go anywhere. It's because yeah. <laughs> your math is off. Right, Gosh, right. $5 a day. No, but I mean, I think that's the thing. It's like, we, we all circle all the same ideas all the time anyway. Right. We can talk about money in the industry. We can talk about money in coffee cans. It's the same conversation. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, thank you for sharing. I I love that yeah, part of a, of the podcast. Sweet. That yeah, and I thank you so much for participating because you know mm-hmm. not not everyone is up for that, but I love when they are. Oh, my pleasure! And thank you guys so much for having me. This was super fun. Thanks for listening this week. Find all of our episodes and other associated links and information at linktree.com/slash/verse/show, or reach out to us on Blue Sky Instagram or Threads. Thanks again, and we'll see you next verse. Bye.